Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, welcome everybody. Glad you're here. Um, Want to invite you to pull out a notebook if you got one. If you don't have one, get one for next time. If you're new with us this week, we are in a series called The Story of Jesus, and we are looking at the life of Jesus section by section by section going through the book of Mark. And we are spending a whole year in the book of Mark. This is week 21. Uh, and so we're kind of just getting started. And if you've missed up to this point, you can go back on our website for free and watch all, binge watch all 21 messages. Um, or you can just pick up here. But I want to invite you back. I want to invite you to keep coming, get a notebook and get a Bible. And here, here's what I understand. Here's what I know from personal experience. And here's what we see happening in the lives of the people who have been on this journey to this point. When you spend this kind of time with Jesus, not with religion, not with, with what other people say about Jesus, but when we're just spending time with the real Jesus, he begins to change your life. He begins to transform you a bit, the way you see the world, the way you go through life. And I want to invite you to come along on the rest of this, this series with us as we navigate the rest of this year. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verse 53 is where we're going to start. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to that, either digital or paper, either way, you'll be good. And then just follow along and read along with what we're we're covering. Two weeks ago, Jen shared with us the the account of when Jesus fed 5,000 men, probably 10 to 15,000 people total with a box lunch of a a young boy, Uh, big miracle. And then he tells his disciples, look, guys, get in the boat. I want you to go across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, it's called. And I want you to go over to a a town called Bethsaida. Guys, head off in that direction. I'll catch up with you. And Jesus goes up on the mountainside to pray. Now, as they're out on the lake, and Myron covered this last week, um, one of these windstorms that the Sea of Galilee is famous for kicks up, and uh, they're caught in the middle of this storm, and Jesus walks to them on the water, walks out on the lake, and again, if you missed that, you can go back and watch last week's or podcast it, whatever, but you can catch up on that message. But they're on their way to a place called Bethsaida, and Jesus comes to them out on the lake and uh, kind of to their rescue Uh, But then they land on the other side, but they don't land in Bethsaida. They land in a place called Gennesaret. Uh, So Jesus sends them to Bethsaida, but they land in Gennesaret, which brings me to my first point in this message, and you might want to pull out your notebook and write this down. The first point is this. These guys got blown off course a little bit, right? The plans didn't work out the way they expected them to. And so the first point is this. When your plans get blown off course, don't freak out. When your plans get blown off course, don't freak out. God is up to something better. He is up to something better. And guys, here's here's the truth. If you can live this way, if you can learn to believe that in here, get it through your thick head and your thick heart, that God is up to something better, even if things aren't working out the way you have planned, the way you expect, or even the way you think God has planned, that God is still in control and he is going to work it out and something better is going to come from it. And it, it changes the way you navigate life. You have peace. Life becomes an adventure 
and you're on an adventure with God and there are opportunities all around you that you are open to see because you're not fretting about the fact that your plans aren't working out the way you expected them to. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't hit storms along the way. Jesus, in fact, sent them out onto the lake knowing, because he was Jesus, knowing that there would be a storm that they would go through. Um, and it doesn't mean that you heard God wrong, right? They heard God, they heard Jesus very clearly. Jesus was saying, I want you to go to Bethsaida. And, and so that's where they were going. They didn't end up in Bethsaida, did they? Um, back when I was in college, uh, my senior year, I wrote a, a, a term paper, it was my senior thesis, uh, developing a uh, Christian wilderness adventure ministry. It was, it was a vision I believe God had given me, and, and I got it all down on paper, and I graduated, and I went to summer camp that summer with, uh, with some kids from, I was going to school in Syracuse at the time, and some kids from Syracuse, New York. We went to a, a Young Life camp in the Adirondacks. And uh, I got there, and I walked into the store, and the woman who is now my wife, Christy, was working at the store. And I knew Christy from the summer before because we had some mutual friends working there. So we had met. We knew each other. And I walked in and she said, Chris Figaretti, do you remember me? And I said, remember you? You're the woman of my dreams if I wasn't in love with my girlfriend. Which I was in love with my girlfriend at that point in time. So it wasn't going anywhere. No romance or anything. Although she does love to tell that story for some reason. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, I said, what are you doing now that you graduated? And she said, well, what I'd really like to do is start a Christian wilderness adventure ministry for kids from the inner city. I've been working with these kids at the school, and, and we've been doing some of that. And I'm like, kind of like all the hair stood up on my arms. And I was like, oh, I just wrote a paper about that. And so we had a nice conversation. I walk out the door, I walk around the building, and down the stairs comes my friend Mike, who's from Wheeling, who's not supposed to be in New York. He's supposed to be in North Carolina that summer, but they called him up for that week. And I said, Mike, you're not going to believe the conversation I just had with Christy. And he's like, and he was like, all the hair stood up on his arms, and he's like, I've been studying sociology and and, uh, and we've been studying this adventure programming and working with at-risk youth. That's what I want to do. And I was like, whoa. So we got together a bunch of times that week. We prayed. We said, you know what? Let's just listen and see what God has to say about this. And over the course of the next two years, we had prayed our way through it. And we all felt convicted like God was saying, do it. Start it. And so we, we moved back to uh, Wheeling. Mike and I moved back to Wheeling. Christy quit a job with benefits and security and all of that and moved to Wheeling where she didn't know anybody but Mike and I, which is scary enough. And she uh, lived in the closet of a Young Life Leaders house in, uh, in, in Bel Air, Ohio. And she lived there for years working temp jobs. I was working temp jobs, living in my parents' attic for six years. We started a nonprofit organization. We did trips. Uh, after six years, we, were, we got to the point where it was so nonprofit, we couldn't afford to actually continue anymore. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, God began to birth a vision in my heart for the local church. Like the local church could be a light in the community. The local church could help people who are far from God meet him. A local church could potentially reach the next generation. And I found myself kind of getting blown off course. 
And, uh, you know, and, and God, and at the end of all that, when we finally shut the ministry down, you know, I had all these doubts and, and questions. And I was like, well, God, did you, why, why did you send us back to Wheeling just to close this thing down? Did we not hear you right? And, and it, with a little bit of time under my belt and some life experience and getting to know God a little bit better, I'm quite confident we heard him correctly. It's kind of like sending the disciples to Bethsaida and them ending up in Gennesaret. He sent us back to Wheeling. He sent us back to Wheeling to start that. We had confirmation after confirmation, but it wasn't so that we could do that. It was so that we could get here. And 25 years later, here we are. And uh, it was all part of God's plan, and God was up to something better. Well, the passage goes on in, in verse 54. It says, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed See, God was up to something better. Jesus, Jesus was trying to get them, not to Bethsaida, but to Gennesaret. And he told them to go to Bethsaida, but it was all part of the plan. Now, if they got all twisted and wrapped around the axle about the fact that they didn't go where he sent, they would have missed the opportunities at hand. But God was up to something better. When well, verse 56, it says, they begged him, this is the, the people who were sick or the people who were bringing the people who were sick, they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. Now, this is, this is super interesting because in the original language, what becomes apparent is that what, they're, what they are describing as the edge of his cloak is the edge of his prayer shawl. It's called a, um, a tzitzit. And it's a Jewish prayer shawl. It's got little tassels on the end. It's a very central part of the Jewish tradition and the Jewish religion. And so what we see is that Jesus is practicing Judaism. He is honoring the Jewish tradition. Jesus was not like, hey, I'm going to come down in and burn down all the Jewish stuff. He was honoring. He was practicing it. But what we will see, what you're about to see, is that Jesus wasn't worshiping the Jewish traditions. And where the Jewish traditions got in the way of people coming to God, Jesus just didn't cooperate with that. He would always obey God's commands, but he would not always obey the traditions and the laws that people had made up. And at the same time, did his best to honor his people in the process. In Mark 7 verse 1, as this as this continues, it says this, it says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. And they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So if you remember back to when we started the, this series on Mark, um, Mark was a kind of a protege of Peter. And, and also, it's believed that he, he wrote down a lot of Peter's accounts of what happened in Jesus' ministry and life. And so, um, but... He is writing 
to a non-Jewish audience, Roman specifically, he's writing to a Roman audience. So along the way, what we'll see is that he'll stop and he'll explain some of the Jewish traditions that people wouldn't understand otherwise, which is really helpful for us because we're not Jewish either. So it is helpful to know that they have this tradition that they wash their hands and they wash their their plates and kettles and pitchers, and it's all, it wasn't a germ theory thing. This was a spiritual uh, practice that they practiced. So we'll go on. Verse five, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? We've covered this a little bit in the series so far, but one of the things that the Jewish religious leaders had done over the generations is they made up extra rules to protect God's rules. So God gave them the Ten Commandments and and the laws that they were supposed to follow. But they said, well, we don't want anybody getting close to breaking one of those laws. So we're gonna build a law here and we're gonna put it in a tradition here and we're gonna put this in place so nobody can ever get close to breaking one of God's laws. But it becomes oppressive, right? They're micromanaging people's lives. So, so for the, the, this idea of washing hands, which by the way, I'm just saying from a germ theory perspective, washing your hands before you eat is not a bad idea. But it is not a spiritual problem. The chief priests, see what God had said is the chief priests, if before they go into the presence of God, must wash ceremonially. So anyway, I'm not sure I said ceremonially correctly. There you go. Ceremonially. They have to wash ceremonially. So, um, and, and that was part of their spiritual cleansing then to be able to go into the presence of God. But, you know, so at some point somebody said, you know what, well, God could be anywhere and we should probably, you know, if we go out into the marketplace, we can become unclean, be exposed to somebody who's unclean or something that's unclean. So people should probably wash, before, you know. And, and, and so now, and they're like, what's well, in the Bible? Well, no, it's not. It's a tradition that they had come up with to protect, you know, anyway. You got it, right? We see this in the church sometimes, right? Over the years, I mean, you see some churches that are like, you know, you should never have drums in church. Well, why shouldn't you have drums in church? Because drums lead to dancing and dancing leads to sex. And adultery is against God's laws. So, so what we do is we say, well, God said, it's, God said you can't have drums in the church. It's in the Bible. No, it's not. I mean, I can see how you got there, but that's not what he said. Um, same thing with alcohol. You know, alcohol, you, some churches are like, never drink alcohol ever. And we'll tie ourselves in knots, you know, trying to explain that Jesus turned water into grape juice, not wine. No. It was wine, and, and, and nowhere in the Bible does it say don't drink alcohol. Now, I always have to say this when I say this. If you struggle with alcoholism, don't drink alcohol, it's stupid, okay? But it's not in the Bible. Well, being wise is in the Bible, so don't be stupid, right? But nowhere in the Bible does it say don't drink. It says don't be a drunk. Don't get drunk. It's a different thing altogether. Next week we'll see um, another Sabbath encounter where Jesus and the, and the disciples are called into question on that. And, it, you know, and the Sabbath was God's gift to the Jewish people. It was one of the Ten Commandments. It was a gift of rest. It was uh, given to them with the purpose 
of enjoying each other and enjoying life and enjoying him. And God knew that we are neurotic and we're fearful and, and that we needed to, to hit the pause button on a regular basis and just slow down and recharge and enjoy him and enjoy each other and enjoy life. But what the Jewish religious leaders said, well, you can't work on the Sabbath. That's, you know, that's part of his, his resting. So what is work? And they defined micromanage, defined work. You can only take this many steps. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do that. To the point that people were working more to prepare for not working than they would have if they just worked straight through. And then on, and then on the Sabbath, they'd sit there and look at each other, bored out of their minds. It wasn't a joy at all. It missed the point. And this is what people tend to do when it comes to rules, when it comes to religion. And one of the things that becomes clear in this passage, and if you read the life of Jesus in the book of Mark, it becomes clear throughout. Jesus was not a legalist. He followed God's laws, but he, he would not follow all the laws and, and, and traditions of, of the elders because well, quite frankly, they were keeping people from God. And this is one of the rubs that we will see. And Jesus gets emotionally angry. I know we like to think that Jesus is, is uh, you know, he, he's soft-spoken and kind and he never gets upset. And he's got blue eyes and blonde hair and he carries sheep and children around with him all the time. But that wasn't Jesus. Jesus gets kind of pissed. And he says, he says this, he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He was right when he prophesied about you. Hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus is not being nice. The religious leaders are back on their heels and he's basically saying, guys, you have made up a bunch of rules and you're oppressing people and you're keeping them from God. And this isn't about your relationship with God. And this isn't about you being righteous. This is about you having control, which brings me to my second point in this sermon. You want to write this down. It's this rules based religion is bad religion. Rules-based religion is bad religion. We see the passion of Jesus. Jesus just gets angry when people keep people from God. And he says, look, the, the, the prophet was right. You, you've fallen in love with your, with your laws and your rules and your traditions. And you've forgotten about God. And, you know, every generation has a group of people who love the rules more than they love God. Every generation, I mean, they exist everywhere. And we'll see this sometimes in religious circles. You know, I, I, I don't see a lot of it in the church today, but there are circles where, where that happens, where we have this rule and this rule and this rule. It's not really in the Bible, but we can justify it, just like I explained earlier. And, and, and it's all about the rules. And people love the rules. And, and I think part of the reason why is because it gives them power over other people. There are people who love to have power over other people. God doesn't want us living under that. Of course, he wants us to live by his rules. We'll talk about that in a moment and why. But there will always be people who try to control other people with the rules. And sometimes it's religious. Oftentimes, 
It's religious. Certainly in the case of the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, it was religious, but it was also political because those guys were political leaders in their day and age as well. And I think today, probably more often than in religious circles, we see this in political circles where there are people who love to control other people. They love to make the rules and then not apply them to themselves. Now, I'm not, I'm not super political. I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat, but I am a thinker. And uh, what comes to mind for me on that is uh, Gavin Newsom out in, in California who passed a law that said everybody has to quarantine and wear masks and then went out to dinner uh, with a bunch of his friends and nobody was social distancing and nobody was wearing masks and everybody went, the whole nation went, <gasps> because people love to make rules to control other people. But it doesn't really apply to them and Jesus gets at that here in a moment. C.S. Lewis, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis, he was an author and a theologian and a professor from the 20th century, uh, middle of the 20th century. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Chronicles of Narnia. So he wrote some fiction stories, fantastic, brilliant, maybe one of the most brilliant thinkers and authors of the last century. Uh, but he also wrote a lot of theology, things like The Case for Christ, The Problem of Pain, uh, the Screwtape Letters. If you've not read C.S. Lewis and you're a reader, I highly recommend picking up some Lewis. But he said this of the rule people, the people who like to control other people. He said, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satisfied, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, which I don't think they would be, but they might be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. I think that's what Jesus was coming up against with the religious leaders. They had made it such a burden to get to God that people couldn't get to God. He says, he says the same in Matthew 23, 13. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jesus is not being nice, but he is taking on this rules-based religion, and rules-based religion is bad religion. Rules-based politics is bad politics too, but that's, that's aside. In verse eight, he goes on and says, you have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human traditions. Guys, this is at the heart of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. It starts all the way at the beginning. I mean, we have been seeing this all the way along to this point. We will see it to the end of the story. There is a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. It is not nice. Jesus does not mince his words. He gives them the what for. And, and he is passionate about it. In Matthew 23, verse four, he says this to them, they tie up heavy 
cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. See, Jesus came to tear down the extra rules and to set people free. Jesus recognized that this is just built up and built up and to the point that it is a yoke of oppression on people's lives that nobody could keep up. And Jesus came to die for our sins because the payment for sin was death. And so, so that we could be completely forgiven and given a brand new life and a relationship with God and adopted into God's family. And he also came to tear down all the, all the extra rules that had been made up over the years that, that they had a justification for, they had a story behind, but they're keeping people from God. In John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I believe he was, he was partially addressing that at the religious leaders. I have come, he said, that they may have life and have it to the full. See, God created you to have abundant life. He, he's your heavenly father. When he made you, he wanted you to have life in all of its fullness. All, all parents do. You know, I want my kids to live the best possible life they can, to, to become all that they have the potential to become, to enjoy the, the beauty of this world and, our, and their lives and families and all. We want the best for our kids. And that's how God feels about you. That's what he wants. He doesn't want us living under a yoke of oppression. He wants us to be free, which brings me to my third point. You can write this down. Jesus came so you can be free. He came so you can be free. He, he came to free us spiritually from our sin. He came to free us from the oppression of all the rules that are not God's rules. In Galatians 5.1, the apostle Paul, writing to a church that uh, Galatia was not a Jewish city, bunch of new believers and new followers of Jesus who were not Jewish. And they are experiencing all this freedom in Jesus. And there's some, some uh, Jewish believers from Jerusalem hear about it and they're like, well, they have to be Jewish first. And so they come and they tell them, you need, you need to be circumcised and you need to do this and you need to follow all of the rules of our traditions and, and all of that. And this is what Paul says to them to, to help them understand, don't pick that up. Don't pick that up. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't take on all those rules, he's saying. You're not even Jewish and you don't have to be to follow Jesus. So the question then is, what is freedom? What is freedom? And freedom is not the absence of rules altogether. It's, it, freedom is not the absence of boundaries in our lives. You know, that's not freedom at all. When I was a kid, I grew up in a neighborhood and we had the biggest backyard in the whole neighborhood. So all the kids would come together and we would play football in the backyard. And uh, we all knew what the rules were. It was full contact, um, you know, tackle football. We weren't doing any of this wuss touch football stuff. It was, you know, we'd leave with bloody noses and everything, it was awesome. It was back in the 70s when that was fun. Anyway, today everybody would have like padded helmets and then it'd be touch. And anyway, so at any rate, but back then that's what, that's what it was. But we knew what the rules were and we knew where the boundaries were. 
And, and so, I, you know, at, at times people would, you know, when you're playing backyard football, you, you kind of know where the line is. Well, there's this tree and that tree and the line goes between. But people would run around, they'd run over the line, the imaginary line, and then back in and score a touchdown. And, and if people continued to do that, the game became very, very boring. Actually, it was frustrating because that person's having fun, but everybody else is like, no, no, you're out of bounds, right? And we call out of bounds. Because if there are no boundaries, then it's just a free-for-all. Uh, I love the story that uh, Nicky Gumbel tells in the Alpha course about he goes to one of his son's football matches and the referee didn't show up, you know, a little kitty kick foot, um, soccer thing. And the uh, referee doesn't show up. And so they, they say, well, you're going to be the referee. He's like, I don't know the rules. He's, they're like, that's all right. We need a referee. You do it. And doesn't set a boundary, doesn't know any of the rules. 15 minutes in, there are kids laying all over the field, bleeding, and, and uh, nobody's having fun. It's miserable. And then the referee shows up and kind of gives them the boundaries and the lines and the rules and calls out of bounds and all that. And the kids have a blast. Guys, that's life. If there are no boundaries in life, it's just chaos. And then strong people just run over weak people and, and nobody really has life in its fullness. See, life without boundaries is hell. It's chaos. It's anarchy. It doesn't work. And like a game without rules is no fun, life without boundaries is hell on earth. God gives us boundaries so that we can live the best possible life. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says this about the rules. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A rabbi's yoke was their teaching. Jesus says, take my teaching. Let's forget all this other stuff, take my teaching. We're gonna go back to what God said, and we're gonna do that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience in Matthew 11, and they are exhausted from trying to keep 613 laws and all the traditions and everything else that has been piled upon them, and they, can't, they couldn't possibly keep them all, and they're just exhausted. He's like, come to me. Let's get away from the rules-based religion. Let's get to the heart of the matter, which is a relationship with God. Well, as this goes on, one of the thing that, things that becomes apparent is that God's word is the owner's manual for the best life you can live. You can write that down, that's point four. God's word is the owner's manual for the best life. Jesus came so that we could have life in all of its fullness. And there is a difference between getting through this life and having abundant life. There's a difference between surviving this world and living life in all of its fullness. And I am here to tell you that God's word, the Bible, is the owner's manual. It's not the rule book, it's the owner's manual. Now, are there boundaries, are there rules? Yes, there are, and they're good, and they are for your blessing. Um, and they're for my blessing, so we can live the best life possible. You know, last summer we did a series on the Ten Commandments called Ten Talks, and that was the premise of the whole thing. Like, if we live these out as a society, if we live these things out as individuals, it really does set us up to live the best life possible, and that's God's heart for you. That's why he gave us his thoughts, 
in his, his owner's manual. You know, I'm going to put a picture up on the, on the screen here. Um, this is a Can-Am Maverick. Um, it may be one of the coolest things ever, ever created. Um, I want one. But if I didn't know what this was, well, actually, let me, let me back up. The leaders of the state of West Virginia, in all their wisdom last August, made this legal to drive on the streets. Like, you could ride that around wheeling as your main get-around vehicle, which I totally would if one showed up in my driveway because, holy crap, that's cool. Um, so, at any rate... Um, but if I walked out my driveway, I didn't really know what that was, and it had just appeared because, you know, that would happen. Um, you know, an owner's manual would be kind of helpful. What is it? Well, it looks like a vehicle, but, you know, how do you start it? How do you drive it? And in that owner's manual would be things like, well, there's a break-in period. You don't want to run the engine too hard for the first 1,000 miles because you want to break the engine in. Now, is that to keep me, you know, keep me down? No, it's not to keep me down. It's so that the engine will last as long as it possibly can. It needs to break in first. Then you change the oil. But then you have to change the oil every 3,000 miles. And if you don't change the oil every 3,000 miles, the thing's going to break down and have catastrophic failure early. Is God saying change the oil every 3,000 miles? God doesn't say that, by the way. Can-Am does. But every 3,000 miles because they want to keep me down? No, it's so I can get the most out of the Can-Am Maverick, which is the coolest thing I've ever seen. You know, the towing capacity can only tow this much. And is that to, to limit me? No, it's so I don't blow the back end out of the thing and have to rebuild it. God's rules are not to keep, up, keep you down. God's rules are so you can get the most out of life, just like the, the, the owner's manual helps you get the most out of the maverick. I really need to get one of those. Anyway, God does the same thing in his word. He tells us how life works. He is the designer of life. He knows how life works best, and he gives us the roadmap to live the best life possible in his word. And yes, there are rules. It's not rules-based religion, but there are boundaries for our lives, for our benefit, and for our blessing. You know, one of the things the Bible talks a lot about is money and possessions, a lot more than anything else, actually, because, well, Jesus said, you're going to end up serving one or the other. You're going to end up either worshiping money or God, and, and, and you don't want to be worshiping money. That doesn't end well. And, and so it talks a lot about how to view money, how to handle money, how to deal with, with uh, possessions, what, what our internal world needs to look like in, re, in regards to that. Why? To keep us down? No. So we don't have enough? No, God wants to bless us with plenty. It's so that money doesn't rule our lives. Because the reality of money is if you don't understand how it works, and most people don't, you will either never be satisfied or always be afraid. You'll always be afraid you, don't, you won't have enough or you'll never be satisfied with what you have. It's not until you understand that it's not yours anyway, which you find in the book, that's the owner's manual, that's how this works, that it all belongs to God and you just get to take care of it for him. It's not, I mean, that changes everything in your inner world about how you handle your finances and your stuff. Uh, it's not until you understand the primary purpose of, of, of all, all of that is, is generosity and, and being the blessing that you find freedom in that arena and that, that you begin to see God redirect resources your way so that you can be a, you, 
you know, you can be a, a, a blessing to other people. And when you do, you find freedom in that arena. And it, money doesn't own you, and you don't live in fear, and you don't live with greed. But that's in the owner's manual. You know, our sexuality as well. It's in the owner's manual. You know, sex is, you know, everybody thinks that God's a prude and, you know, blushes when we talk about sex. He doesn't. He made it. He invented it. It was his idea. He, I mean, pretty good idea, right? I mean, it's God's wedding gift. I don't care how nice the china your mother got you was. It's nothing compared to sex. It's the greatest wedding gift ever in the history of the world. God invented it. In Proverbs 5, verse 18, you know, it gives us a, a look into the purpose and the boundaries and the guardrails for this gift in our lives. And it's for marriage. It says, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. It's not like, well, may you kind of, you know, get by with the wife. No, rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. Cover your kid's ears. May her breasts satisfy you always. May, I almost read that twice. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Are you blushing? I hope you're blushing. This is, this is God's design for sex and marriage. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? And he goes on to describe just the destruction that comes to our lives with adultery and and, and, and that this gift of sex, this wedding present that God gives us is, is, is designed to be enjoyed, not to savor, to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, delighted in, in the context of a monogamous, long-term, committed, married relationship between a man and a woman. And you know what the research shows today? The research shows that the most sexually satisfied people are in a long-term, committed, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. Hmm. Turns out God knows what he's talking about, and he does. He does. See, God gives us his rules for our blessing, for our delight, for our enjoyment, so we can get the most out of this life. Well, in verse 9, he continues. It says, you have a fine way. He's, going, he's, he's tearing back into the, uh, the religious leaders again. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your, your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God. So there he is explaining to us Gentiles, non-Jews again, what the, what, what's going on here. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Jesus basically saying, you've come up with all these, all these extra traditions and rules and things and they have worked their way above God's laws and this whole thing is a mess. And Jesus is passionate. I mean, you can feel the fire in this exchange. Why? Why does Jesus get so worked up about this? And the, and the answer to that question is, and it's also point number five, is this. Jesus hates anything that separates people from God. 
He hates anything that separates people from God. Jesus hates sin because sin separates us from God. Now, hear me clearly on this. Jesus does not hate sinners. He came to earth, was born as a baby, lived a, a life, a perfect life, and was crucified on a cross to pay for our sins because he loves sinners so that we don't have to be separated from God anymore. But he hates sin. And Jesus hates bad religion too. He hates rules-based religion because what it ends up being is people exercising power over other people and keeping them away from God. And Jesus came so that there would be no separation between us and God, so that his spirit could come and live inside of us, so that we could be free, so that we could live the best life possible in this world and in the world to come. And when our plans get blown off track, it ain't no big deal because we're on an adventure with God and we know that he's up to something better. And guys, that's the life God wants for you. And that's the life that God wants for me. But here's what I know. There are some of us, you have come up in a rules-based religion and, uh, and, and, and there are bits and pieces of that hanging on to the way that you view God. And I believe that God wants to set you free from that today. And I want you right now, where you're sitting, close your eyes and ask him to set you free by the power of his spirit. And there are some of us, you've never experienced the forgiveness of God. You've never given your life to him, asked him to be your Lord and Savior and chosen to follow him. And I'm here to tell you, that is where life in all of its fullness is found. That's where the future that you want, the adventure that you desire to live, the difference you desire to make, it's all found in the freedom that we find from our sins in Christ and the freedom that we find from all the things that pile on and hold us down and keep us from, from God. It's found in following Jesus. And so I wanna give you an opportunity to begin that relationship today. So just close your eyes, bow your head, and just pray something like this. Jesus, I want life in all of its fullness. But I got this sin. Will you forgive me? Will you come into my life? Will you lead me? Will you teach me how to follow? In your name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.